All right, so uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to just jump into our time in the Bible. We call this our time in the Word, preaching, sermon. You've heard it's called different things, but, but realistically what we're going to do is we're going to go to the Bible and we're going to ask God to meet us right here as we uh, read His Word and kind of just expound on it together. And so what, what I want to do to start this time is I want to just go ahead and ask you a simple question and tell you a little story. And the question is this, have you ever felt like someone fully, really had your back? Not like slightly, not like they're kind of there, but they, I mean, they really had your back. They were there. You could count on them for anything. You could count on them for everything in, in a way that elicits complete confidence in them. Like, I completely trust that person. I have complete confidence in them. I was going to say that's not a rhetorical question, but none of y'all answered, so it's a rhetorical question now. Now it is a rhetorical question. Y'all answer, so now we're just going to move on from that space. But, but the reason I tell you that is because of this. Um, that's likely the comfort that Australian, a group of Australian soldiers had in World War II due to a fellow soldier named Tom Moore. Tom Moore uh, was an Australian soldier that had been taken captive in 1940. And unlike his fellow soldiers, though, Tom was placed in charge of the barrack that housed Australian war prisoners. And so he was responsible to German authorities for the conduct and condition of the barrack, but also responsible to the Australian soldiers for their well-being and for their best interests. Now, here's the thing. I just want to read this to you because... Author John H. King described Moore's responsibilities like this. This is not going to be on the board, so I want you to just listen to what I'm saying. The authorities expect him to see their displeasure when anything is wrong with the state of the barrack or the behavior of the men. On the other hand, the men look to him to champion their rights and liberties, real and imagined, to carry out the job efficiently, and to retain the confidence of both sides is a rare achievement, but Tom succeeded. That's an incredible story. And the fact that it was capped off with Tom succeeded is maybe the most incredible part. And while it's incredible, it also makes sense because, yeah, Tom was a good soldier, right? He was disciplined, he was responsible, all the things that you would probably look for in terms of someone who's going to represent you and someone who's going to represent the soldiers as a go-between uh, in the barracks. He was a good soldier, absolutely. But the thing is, as he represented the Australian soldiers, he represented them as an Australian soldier himself. So it makes sense that he would have done well at his job. He represented them not as a German with a soft spot for Australians, but rather as an Australian that cared for his brothers in arms. So every time the Australian prisoners raised an issue, of course, Tom took to it with a deep passion for the subject. He didn't go, oh, okay, I hear you. But he would have seen it and it would have burdened him and he would have presented it to the German authorities as though it was his issue because at the end of the day, it was his issue. He was an Australian soldier. He was a member of the very prisoners that he represented. He was from among them. But on the other hand, every moment of correction, every moment that he had to address a concern from the side of the Germans, he didn't do it as a German, but he still did it as an Australian. He did it with care for them. He did it with them as his priority, with their well-being as his priority. Serving and loving them was his prize. 
you may be wondering why I'm telling you this story. And it's because today, as we continue our sermon series in Hebrews, we're arriving at a powerful, and I mean really beautiful, truth that this, this whole book aims to really get at. And that is that Jesus is our, as the book calls it, great high priest. And while it may feel like that's language we can't relate to, it feels like ancient language that seems so like kind of far from us, the truth inside of this title, Jesus, our high priest, right, is some of the most powerful, gripping, and encouraging truth that we can receive, whether we're in the highest of highs and the most beautiful moments, or whether we are in the most discouraging and challenging moments. The truth in this title is good news, uh, regardless of the season in life that we're in. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and read through our verses for today, and we're going to jump in here. Um, and so if you would, out of respect for these words that, that a lot of us in here believe are given to us from God, I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read. Go ahead, Jerry. Now set the, set the pace. Go ahead. Start standing. Um, and if you want to read these words with me, they're going to be on the board. So feel free to read with me. After I'm done, I'm going to conclude by saying this is the word of the Lord. And I invite you to respond uh, in kind of tradition uh, with to God. Okay? So... Uh, that, that mic is cutting out a little bit, so I'm going to grab this one right here. Um, Luisito, if you wouldn't mind. So, if, um, if you would, starting in chapter 4, verse 14, we're going to read through chapter 5, verse 2, and it goes like this. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest with who, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in time of need." Chapter uh, 5, verse 1 starts, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you feel free to have a seat. In fact, let me rephrase that. Please take a seat. Because if you're still standing... I'm it's going to be weird. So let's get started, right, by just asking a simple question. What is going on here, right? What's happening here? And uh, if you remember from previous weeks, Hebrews is written to discouraged Christians. So the author, who we do not know, we do not know the author, lots of fun theories about that. The more out there you get, the more entertaining they become. That doesn't mean the more truthful they are, but it does provide some entertainment. Um, but whoever the author is, they're writing to discouraged Christians around the region. We don't even have necessarily a place that the, letter, that the letter is written to, but what we do know is that the author wants to deliver encouraging theological truth to Christians who are hurting, discouraged, and, tempted to, and are tempted to leave the faith. And here's the thing. At this point in Hebrews, the author begins a big section that's going to last the next several chapters, and we're going to touch on for the next several weeks, that's about the priesthood of Jesus. Now, the priesthood of Jesus, everybody say priesthood of Jesus. All right, that, that, was, I'm, that was pretty good. Let's go. I'll stick with that one. All right. 
Um, at this point in Hebrews, right, the priesthood of Jesus is the subject. And while that may seem like this big theological idea that seems so far from us, I really want uh, to discourage you from the temptation a lot of us are going to have to withdraw from this subject, right? We start using big theological language like the priesthood of Jesus, that he is the great high priest. And, and you hear all these words that you've heard Christians and pastors and and really, like, even what you might say, like, fanatic Christians, people that are really into the Bible, and, and you, you all of a sudden may feel this temptation to back away and be like, okay, this part's not for me. But, but I, I want to discourage you and push back on that, and I want to remind you of the first point that we made in this entire sermon series. Week one, point one, right, was the fact that big theological ideas aren't just for pastors, theologians, or radical Christians right? But they are for the discouraged and the hurting. And here's the point, that there are times when the comfort our hearts need is the truth of who God is. That there are times the comfort your heart needs is the truth of who God is. And when we learn the truth of who God is, oftentimes that is accompanied by big theological ideas. That's how we learn those truths. And so don't, don't pull away. In fact, pay attention, right? And so what are the big theological ideas that are supposed to bring our hearts comfort here then? Where, what, what is that? Well, here's the thing that I want you to see right from the jump is that there's not a ton of different theological ideas here. There's actually just one. That one idea is that Jesus is our high priest. <laughs> However, what that means and what it means to us, it, it kind of, we can tease that out a little bit. And so we're going to break this text down into three real, like, applicable truths. However, those three truths aren't different truths. They all build into one idea, and that is that Jesus is our high priest. And here's my hope in saying that, is that when we build out this idea that Jesus is our high priest, and you see the little nuggets of truth that come from that, this language of Jesus is our high priest would not be so foreign to you that you go, that's not a big deal, but they would become, they would become words, and it would become language that honestly just the very words Jesus is our high priest would encourage your heart, right? That we wouldn't need to tease out every little element of that, but the very words Jesus, my high priest, would fill you with a sense of encouragement and would lift you up in the midst of things being hard and difficult. And as we tease out these three smaller ideas, it's my hope that the one true big idea, Jesus, our high priest, would become an encouragement to your heart in difficult seasons and in good seasons alike. And so that's the one big idea. Jesus is our high priest, but we're going to break that down into three kind of more smaller truths. Uh, and the first one is this. The first, truth that, that the first truth that this presents us is that Jesus represents us. Jesus represents us. The author starts this larger section of Jesus' priesthood by saying in 414, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. There's a lot here. There's a lot here, but let's try to break it down as simply as we can, right? Everything here is built on the role of the high priest in Judaism, in, in ancient Judaism particularly. And this role or individual was one who represented God to the people, but also represented the people to God, much like Tom Moore, who we started the day talking about, right? He represents both sides as this sort of mediating figure. And so Jesus represents God to us, and he also represents us to God. 
for a deeper dive into this, if you're just like, my curiosity is peaked, okay? Um, the Bible Project on YouTube has a really helpful video with this when it talks about the priesthood uh, in, in terms of Jesus' priesthood. If you're just geeked out and you want to learn more about it, consult that, okay? Now, Jesus isn't just a worker for God the Father, though. He's in the most intimate presence of God. So he's not just the, the priest that's representing God to us and representing us to God, but he's the priest that's representing God to us and representing us to God in the most intimate place with God. How do we know that? Well, because he has passed through the heavens, or he's passed through the heavens. And in ancient Israel, in the temple, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, which was like the central place in the Jewish temple. And that central place, the Holy of Holies, was like this secluded, private, intimate place where it was believed the presence of God actually dwelled. And this idea of passing through the heavens is bouncing off this idea that Jesus, our high priest, represents God to us and us to God, not in the outermost part of the temple, not far away from God, but rather in the holiest part of the temple in God's very presence. Now, why is this so powerful? You're telling me all these things? You're geeking out? Some of y'all are already like, bro, I'm checking out. You're losing me already. Stick with me, I promise. Hold on. Because why is this so powerful? Well, the reason this is powerful is because of what is said about Jesus in the very next text. In the very next verse, verses 15 and 16, right, the verse actually tells us who it is that is our high priest and who it is that now is next to God at the right hand of God in the most intimate places with God. In verse 15, I want to remind you, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Here's why that is all so powerful. Because the one who represents us to God is not just fully God. Yes, Jesus is fully God. But the one who represents us to God is also fully human. We often emphasize, right, the, the divinity of Jesus, that he is holy, that he is God. I mean, and I'll, it's important for us to, to defend that truth. That's a reality that, like, legitimately, friends, the whole first part of church history was basically them being like, no, Jesus is all the way God. And we're willing to die on that truth. Some of them are willing to go a little overboard and be like, we'll also kill them for that truth. We're not going to be them people. We ain't trying to be them. There's mistakes that can be made by the church, too. But what I'm getting at is that realistically, this is an extraordinarily important topic that through church history has been defended and held to and has said, hey, this is important. Absolutely. But in the midst of difficulty, the author of Hebrews sees our discouraged heart and says, what you need to know is that the one who represents you to God and who represents God to you, the one who is advocating on your behalf to God in heaven, that goes seems so far away, but yet you are there and he's with you. How? Because the one who represents you is just like you. He's felt the weight of darkness with you. He's struggled the way you've struggled. He's hurt the way you've hurt. Right? This person is not just God far away that can't relate, but he's fully God, fully man, and he can relate perfectly to you. That's why he's so incredibly powerful as the one that represents you to God and God to you. He's, he perfectly relates to you. 
And here's the thing. The moment we start to understand how this has an emotional and I think relational power to it, the more it becomes important to us. Let me give you an example that <coughs> we believe, based on the affirmation of many of you, uh, and uh, at this point, some early maybe medical um, advice, that our middle son, our oldest, uh, no, our oldest son, middle child, Jude, has ADHD. His brother's hyper. His brother also has absolutely no impulse control whatsoever. In fact, it was funny because the other day, was it yesterday? We've been sick this week. I'm like low-key kind of sick right now. That's why I'm wearing a mask and stuff. And so my impulse control is even lower than it should be right now, which is, I might say some random things to be honest. But the other day I was talking to him. He got in some trouble and his mom sent him up to me and I was in our bedroom. And I talked to him and I said, hey, brother, look at me, man. You know, respect people's things. Respect people's things. Don't touch what's not yours. Okay, Dan. Respect people's things. Say it with me. Respect people's things. Respect people's things, Dan. Don't touch what's not yours. Don't touch what's not yours. I, um, I walk out of the room. Within five seconds, I hear, Jude, don't touch that. And I came back in. I was like, what happened? And she was like, he got your phone all wet. And I was like, how'd that happen? And he was like, he picked it up and just put it in a puddle. And I was like, brother, we just talked about this five seconds ago, right? That's, that's our life oftentimes when it comes to my middle son. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to front with you. It can be frustrating. It can be really challenging. But I started to read about ADHD a lot. And I started to become informed about it. And... There were parts of it, whether I think I have it or not, is beyond the point. But I think what, what my point is, is that as I started to read about it, started to understand it, I started to relate to him through moments that I felt like I could relate it from the mutual experience. Like a lot of y'all know when I'm up here, I be saying like random side comments. And it's not that I want to say those things. I remember I've told y'all before that like my dad sitting in the back, uh, has multiple times been like, man, Mijo, you should stop doing the little side comments. And he's like, because they're distracting for people at times. And I've listened to him and been like, no, absolutely. I don't want to do those side comments. I don't want to do that. But it's really hard. It's really hard not to. Like, Y'all have no idea. Like things will pop into my mind and there are times where I aggressively have to fight to not say them. This also applies in my face. <laughs> a lot of y'all know, I'm not a good poker player. I'm a horrible poker player. Cause like legitimately, my face tells the whole story. And my wife regularly has to lean over and be like, fix your face. Cause I, if you say something crazy and I'm having trouble relating to what you're saying, there's a good chance I'm gonna look at you like, and I'm just gonna have that face stuck on me, looking at you, just, what? It's not because I don't like you, it's because I can't figure it out and I can't control my face. So you're getting my, bro, what are you talking about, face? The more I started relating to that experience, the more I started to look at him and say, man, it's, my compassion for him grew by leaps and bounds. For we do not have a high priest who can't relate to 
that the compassion that overwhelms the heart of your Redeemer and Messiah and representative is not one that comes from sympathy as though you are so little and he is so great and you are so weak and he is so strong, but that he has felt the weight of what it means to be human. And he's felt the weight of what it means to be hurting and what it means to be weak. That he has joined us in our weakness, save sin, meaning that though he was weak and in the state of humanity, right, he didn't sin. He's still without sin. That that's the compassion that he has for you and for me, the one who represents us to God and who represents God to us, right, is not one that just looks at you with kind of belittling sympathy, but, but one that actually relates to you in a powerful way. And so how does this shape how, how does this relating and, and compassion shape the way he represents us to God and, and the way he represents God to us? Well, that's where the second truth comes in. The first truth is that Jesus represents us, but the second truth is that he's able to sympathize with us, right? He's able to sympathize. In verse 15, we've already read it a couple of times. We're going to read it again, right? 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Because he is, he understands. Because he is us, he understands us. He relates to us. Uh, he relates to us perfectly. I'm going to have to blow my nose so that y'all can avoid hearing me like sucks not up into my nose every five seconds. So give me a minute. Shout out to Meredith Rester for the, uh, it even say Josh's preaching tissues, so shout out to her. Sub, sub note for when the spirit and the snot hits, that's what, that's what her sub note is to it. He relates to us perfectly, therefore his compassion for us is perfect. Okay, and here's the thing, that, that ends up really like shaping and forming his approach to representing us and, and us representing, uh, or representing us to God and representing God to us. Even the word here for sympathy is important to understand how God relates to us, right? The, the word sympathy is, is a combination of two words in Greek, and it really is way bigger and better than the word sympathy, if I'm being honest. The first part of the word is the idea of co, or being with or joined to something, but the the second idea is the idea of passion or suffering. And so when, when the verse says that he's not, uh, he's, he's not unable or he is able to sympathize with us, what it's saying particularly is that when we feel the weight of pain, he feels it alongside of us, that he is a co-sufferer with us in the midst and while we're going through hardship. That, that, that's what this is pointing to, that because he represents us as human, now when he looks at us, he suffers alongside of us. That when you're going through the most difficult times of your life, he doesn't look at you as one that, that doesn't relate to you, but rather he's looking at you as one who perfectly relates to you. In fact, the weight of his passion and love is so deep that he feels the weight of your mourning with you. That he joins you in that. That his literal suffering is not like one who's looking at you and going, oh man, you're gonna get through it, I promise but he suffers alongside of you. 
he's the Australian soldier who is an Australian soldier going, man, I hear your burdens and I know them because I am you. I suffer them with you. If you've ever been burdened in your life and felt alone, this is an incredible, echoing, just in booming truth that you're never alone. That whatever is common, whatever suffering is common under the sun, that you have a, a Messiah and a Redeemer who is acquainted with that suffering, and he suffers through those things with you, alongside of you. Because he is you. He's human like you. He suffers alongside of you. Um, bro, who wrote this? I put a quote down here, but I didn't attribute it to anybody, so now I'm trying to figure out who wrote this. All right, this quote is either N.T. Wright or it's the guy that wrote Gentle and Lowly. Who's the guy that wrote Gentle and Lowly? Dane Ortland. I think it's Dane Ortland, okay? And again, this is not going to be up here, but I want to read this to you because it's this quote that's trying to build out the idea of how God and Jesus relates to you. Just listen, please, intently. Uh, Ortland writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly, Jesus is not Zeus. He was a sinless man, not a sinless superman. He woke up with bedhead. He had pimples at 13. He never would have appeared on the cover of men's health. He had no beauty that we should desire him, from Isaiah 53 too. He came as a normal man to normal men. He knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. That's our Messiah. That's our priest. That's who represents us to God. One that perfectly looks at us, that looks at you and understands uh, the other day, by the way, lots of kid examples today because it's just the perfect association in a lot of ways. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Leah, my oldest, uh, my daughter, my only girl, oldest uh, child, uh, she came home from school and she's in kindergarten and she came home and we got really worried because she was like, she was in a bad mood. Those of you that know my daughter know she's a pretty jovial little kid. She's in a really good mood most of the time, always wants to play, always wants to be on the up and like hang out. And she was just, like, I'll be honest with y'all, she was foul. And I was like, oh man, what's going on here? I don't know what's happening. And so we tried to find a moment where she was gonna be, uh, she was semi-calm and we just tried to approach her uh, and say, hey, are you okay? Should have pulled the mic away for that, I'm sorry. Um, are you okay? And she said, no. We said, why? What's going on? And she looked and said, no, one's, no one plays with me at recess. And instantaneously, like, I was overwhelmed with emotion. She was like, man, I've just been walking around the playground by myself all recess, and I hate school. And it would not be appropriate for me to say that I had sympathy for my daughter at that point. 
it would not be the appropriate word. Because I, I was suffering with her. I felt it, it felt like as much as she felt it. She started crying and I had to fight back every bit of tear that I had because it felt like not just like she was going through it, but she's mine. I'm, her, I'm hers. She's flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Like for her to be alone walking around the playground, it felt as good as me being alone and walking around the playground. I felt like I was in it with her. I was overwhelmed. More than that, I've probably also, also been alone walking around on a playground. This may be absolutely shocking to some of y'all, considering my personality now. But there was a point in time where I was an extraordinarily shy child. And I know that seems very far from what you see now. <laughs> yes, I know. This is coming from the same guy that will literally walk to me and be like, hey, that's a complete stranger. Like, can I pray for you? And people are often like, bro, get away from me. I'm like, on to the next one. Um, but I've been that. I've, I've felt that. She's mine. She's my daughter. I've also been in that position, and I suffered with her. That's what your Messiah, that's what your priest, your high priest feels toward you when you suffer. Right? He suffers with you. He feels the weight of it. I want to also encourage y'all. It turns out that Leah was just being spoiled. She had actually spent the whole first semester being the person on the playground that got to make up the games. And the first two weeks of the school year, when we got back from Christmas break, another girl made up a game. And Leah was just like, you know what? I don't want to play this game. If I'm not the one making up the rules, I don't want to do it. And so she just annexed herself from her friends and decided I'm not going to. And then she came back, and we even messaged her teacher, and her teacher was like, she has a ton of friends, dude. She has a wild amount of friends. Maybe too many friends, to be quite frank with you. And like two days later, she came back and she was like, we made a new game. I play with everybody now. And I was like, oh, all right, let's, little, little spoils. We got to figure something else out now. All right, that's just a whole other set of concerns that I got to deal with. But it was okay. Point being, I suffered with her in that moment. I, I was, it was weighty, all right? He is, he is able to sympathize with you. He suffers alongside of you, okay? And so now the last one. Truth three is that he deals gently, right? So we have he is able to sympathize and that he, he represents us. He's able to sympathize. And the third one is that he deals gently with us. Getting down to chapter five, chapter five, one through two says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed in weakness. Now, what's happening here? Well, the high priest is taken from among men and appointed to matters pertaining to God, and he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. Um, for those of you that have read the book Gentle and Lowly um, by Dane Orland, 
I referenced it just a little bit ago. He has this incredible section here where he shows the two Greek words that mean sympathize and the other Greek word that means uh, gently have a sort of um, relationship. Uh, they have kind of like a shared verb between them. This idea that in our language, we can't see the connection, but for the individuals reading this in Greek, they would have seen almost like an outpouring from one to the other, that because he's able to sympathize is why he can deal gently. Because he sympathizes, because he suffers along with us, he can deal gently with us. And, and this word is really incredible. It, it actually is the idea of the first uh, word in the gently uh, Greek word is a restraint, and the second word is passion or suffering. And so it's this vision that he restrains his emotion. And so even in the midst of our foolishness, in the midst of our failure, he restrains any emotion or passion. And so what comes out is gentleness and calmness. That because he sympathizes with us, because he suffers alongside of us, when he sees us fail, when he sees us hurting, right, he is actually extraordinarily gentle and extraordinarily compassionate. That he puts his arm around you, he puts his arm around me, he embraces us and draws us with a compassion, a gentleness, a kindness that doesn't have a hint of I told you so, doesn't have a hint of you should have, doesn't have a hint of you better next time, but is completely grounded in kindness and gentleness. And here's what's even maybe more incredible about that is you might be saying to yourself, but that can't be true of me. Right? Because maybe he feels that way to people that have made mistakes. Maybe he's able to sympathize, and, and from there, maybe he's very gentle when he addresses people that have slipped up, that have disobeyed or hurt others and made mistakes unknowingly. But the thing is, me, I have made egregious like actions against him knowingly. I know what I'm doing is wrong, and I've done them anyway. And so for while this is all good and great, and while, while you may actually be able to say something that encourages all the people here that go, I've made a mistake, I'm left on the outside because I'm not making mistakes. I have actively done the wrong thing. To which case, the conclusion of this verse is actually maybe the most powerful part, that he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, because this would have been alluding to the Old Testament distinction between intentional and unintentional sins. That in Numbers 15, uh, as a great example, there's a verse that says, if one person sins unintentionally, he is to present a year-old female goat as a sin offering. The priest will then make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the person who acts in error, sinning unintentionally, and when he makes atonement for him, he will be forgiven. But if you jump down to verse 30 in that same chapter, it says, but the person who acts defiantly, that's the person who knows with a native or resident alien, that individual blasphemes the Lord. That person is to be cut off from his people. Man, that's tough. That's tough. But because he sympathizes with us. He knows what it feels like to be under the pressure of, of human weakness. He now treats us gently, a gentleness that extends to both our unintentional mistakes, 
for those who were ignorant. And now his gentleness extends to intentional mistakes, those who are going astray. And so you, you're not left out in the cold if, if you are intentionally disobeying. In fact, because of his compassion, because of his ability to relate to you, because of his sympathy and his gentleness, right, you are treated with gentleness from him. He wraps you in his gentleness all the more. All right, I have an example here, but I'm going to skip it for the time being because I got to get to two more things before we close up. So what are the, what are the three truths that we, we worked out? First is that Jesus represents us, right? And, and that means because he is fully God but also fully human, he is able to sympathize with us. He suffers alongside of us. And because he suffers alongside of us, whether you sin against him unintentionally or whether you sin against him intentionally, or whether you're just hurting because of the darkness of the world around you, he treats you with gentleness and compassion and kindness. Why is this important? Why is it important that you know those things? Why is it important that you know them things? Because that can stop here, apparently, and probably be like, all right, hope that encourages you. Be blessed. Let's take communion. But here's the thing, if I stopped and asked you, why is that important? Maybe you know, maybe you don't. And while there's probably more reasons of why it's important than I can address in the last four minutes I'm going to be talking here, I want to make two of them very clear to you. The reason these truths are important, the truth that Jesus is our high priest, is first because what you believe will influence how you approach God. What you believe will influence how you approach. Think about what the main point of this text was, what the implication of it was in verse 16. It says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive what? Mercy and find what? Grace to help us in times of need. That in your most challenging seasons, I promise you, if you're not holding on to the truth that God is now uh, he sees you in this way that relates to you, that sympathizes with you, that's gentle. When times are difficult and maybe even when times are good, you will not approach him in ways that expect to find grace and find mercy. But you'll approach him in ways that are shaped by your upbringing, by the failures of your parents, by groups of friends that have let you down. And you'll think the one you're approaching is just like them and is going to greet you with I told you so's and is going to greet you with you should have. Instead, if we believe this well, it influences how how we approach God and how we approach God is expecting to find mercy and receive grace. Why? Because he represents us, sympathizes with us, and is gentle with us. It influences how you approach God. If you don't know these things, if you're not taking these things and digesting them and trying to meditate on them every day, I promise in the midst of your failures, you will find yourself isolated and alone. And the first step to that isolation will be when you feel the weight of what you've done wrong and it leads you to first isolate from God. You don't go to him. You stop praying. You avoid a Bible. You don't come to church. You avoid a friend. You don't go to community group. Why? Because there's that thing in you that goes, I don't want to talk about 
what's happening. And the first place that starts is inside where no one can see between you and God. But when we recognize his character and his role as our priest, then we influences how we approach God because we approach him in boldness. That's crazy. In boldness, expecting to find mercy and grace. So what we believe will influence how you approach or what you believe. Will the other one is this, though. What you believe will influence how you relate. And this is the thing about to others. Right. What you believe will influence how you relate to others. And I mean this in three ways. The first one is that if you find yourself. Well, let's let's start here. If you know that you're doing something wrong, I guarantee you the first place you start running is to to isolation. That's everyone's initial temptation. First, it starts internally isolating from God. But after that, it works toward isolating from people. And so notice that I said I start with not praying, not opening a Bible, but I get to not going to church and not going to a small group. I get to avoiding a friend. I get to those places, not naturally, not primarily, but honestly, as a result of first isolating from God. I get away from God and then I get away from people. Just like I first start to love God and then start to love people. But, but when I don't believe this well, I isolate from God. I don't approach with boldness, expecting grace. And as a result, I start to pull away from people and isolate on my own. The second way I think this relates is in compassion. When we don't necessarily believe this, when we're not operating in this place where we see God in this merciful and compassionate way as our high priest, we can end up treating people unkindly, unjustly, just with an, an immense amount of, of, I mean, a complete lack of compassion and mercy when they fail. We said this a couple of weeks ago, that if the result of your own holiness is you being like everyone else ain't as good as me, that wasn't God. That was you. That was you just getting a little bit better at things, and the result was you getting a little more proud. Because what ends up happening is when we believe this, in the same way that we're able to, or that God, uh, through Jesus, is able to sympathize and be gentle with us, we're now able to sympathize and be gentle to others in their failure. And I think the third place it supplies is being able to sympathize with those that are suffering. I think that it's not just, anything that we see in Jesus is not meant to just be for us, but it's meant to be through us. And so when we see him being the mediator that represents us to God and God to us, becoming a, a, a gentle, compassionate, sympathizing person, it means that we're now meant to be mobilized and sent out into the world as people that represent uh, the hurting and the broken to God with sympathy and with gentleness. And the thing is, you may ask, what does that mean? It means standing in the gap on behalf of people that are hurting. It means serving them and loving them. It means maybe joining them in their suffering and joining them in their pain. And, and you may still be asking, like, what does that even look like? It, it, I think in part, it, I could give you a couple of examples, but I think one, it looks like serving. There's a lot of people in here that don't have a need for food. You don't, you're not hungry. I know I ain't hungry. But yesterday I saw a group of you go out to Impact Now Dove Springs put together a bunch of food and hand it out, despite the fact that it was like 30 degrees out of nowhere, y'all. Like, man, it got so cold overnight. That was a side note, my bad. But like on Saturday morning, it was so cold, and you went out there, and you put food together, and you gave it out to help our community. Why? Because you're hungry? No, because you're joining someone in their suffering. Because you're saying, no, this is, this is where they're at, so I'm going to join them where they're at to help where they are, maybe to get them where they can go. I mean, this is where, and, and I don't, 
I, we're not a, we don't have a political affiliation. Last week, I talked about the fact that justice comes in the beauty of helping the marginalized and in, and in, and in being there on behalf of, like, like, minority communities. I'm a Mexican, to be fair. Like, I, I understand that. But at the same time, we argued against the fact that sometimes with mutated or mutilated visions of justice, we can cut down other people. And, and in our culture, sometimes that particularly looks like white males. That's a beautiful tension to hold because it means that there's a group in in the more progressive philosophy that we would absolutely align with and say, hey, this is what we would advocate because it's the kingdom. And then there's something that we might push back on at the same time to say, no, 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 but we also push back on that because that's not the kingdom. And our allegiance is to the kingdom. As a result, when you stand in the gap for individuals that, and you kind of are the mediator, you, you are this role of Jesus being the sympathizer and the gentle, compassionate advocate, right? What, what that means is it, it, it may mean you marching somewhere. It may mean you speaking out against something. It may mean you aligning in a way that hurts, not hurts, but, but offends people. The first place that starts is by straight up being like Jesus is the, is the son of God and the only way to salvation. Pretty hefty statement, to be fair. But that's the place where it, we start. This even says because we have such a high priest, Jesus, the son of God, we hold fast to our what? Confession. That even the ability to align with the kingdom and to seek justice in the world starts with the ability to look and say, I adhere to the kingdom's values. I adhere to the vision of justice in the world that is Jesus' vision of justice and restoration, and that's what I'm going to do. And so that's what we want to go out into the world and pursue. There's a reason why we have a, a youth ministry. And it's not just for the sake of the kids in this church. It's for the sake of the kids in this community that have no tie to this church. It, it, it's for the sake of kids that have honestly, like, there was that one time that one little kid, Owen, just meandered in here. I don't know if y'all remember him. He was like a little white boy just running his, riding his bike around. He just came and sat down right there in that chair in the middle and just sat here for 10 minutes just looking at, just watching. And someone was like, what? He was like, what are y'all doing in here? And somebody was like, we're having church. And he was like, oh, cool. Just came in here and sat down. It's like, praise God for that little boy. I hope we see him again. But like this idea of what we believe influencing how we relate to others is powerful and important because it'll shape how we go out into the world to bring about justice and renewal in the world around us. And if we see it as one who is able to sympathize and be gentle, we'll, we'll be able to go out and function as one who brings restoration and hope. And so that's why this is important. That's why we want to wrestle with this idea. That's why when your heart is, is, is wrestling against this idea of God's compassion and mercy to you, I want to encourage you to come back and listen to this. Come back and look at the notes in your Bible. Remember that he represents you, that he's fully God and fully human, and he represents you to God and represents God to you. And because of that, he is sympathizing with you. He suffers alongside of you. He joins you in your suffering because of his love for you. And then as a result, he's gentle with you. He withholds any, any passion, and it comes out as really just like this comforting embrace from your Redeemer. And that should lead us to approaching God with confidence and in, and in serving others, right, with boldness. I'm done now, so... Let's pray, and then we're going to take communion. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Help us to understand the truth of your word and, and the encouragement of your word. Help us to approach you with boldness, expecting mercy and grace, uh, not because of who we are, what we've done, but rather because of who you are, the truth that you represent us, you sympathize with us, you suffer alongside of us, and you're gentle with us. Because of that, you're gentle 
and, and kind to us. And so help us. We love you. We thank you. Let that produce a relationship with you that is full of intimacy and connectedness. And let it produce a relationship with the world around us that's full of justice and that's full of intimacy and that's full of advocacy. And so I love you. I thank you. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.